I'm Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is the Cosmos Briefing Podcast. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Ghana people, traditional owners of the land where I speak to you from today, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. In this episode of our weekly series where journalists from the Cosmos newsroom bring you their highlights from the week in science, we hear about how dinosaurs may have caught colds and got goosebumps, talk about some of our favourite scientists to mark the International Day of Women and Girls in Science, and reveal some of the interesting science stories behind this year's Winter Olympics. Our journalists today are Jamie Priest, Emma Perfetto and Ellen Fidian. Emma, last Friday was International Day of Women and Girls in Science, and you have a few interesting scientists you wanted to talk about, yeah? Yeah, so we looked back at the long-forgotten climate science discovery of Eunice Newton-Foote. In 1856, she published the first paper to propose the connection between carbon dioxide and global warming, but her contribution to climate science was lost to history for more than 150 years. What led to her proposing that connection? The short of it was that she looked at the change in temperature within some glass tubes filled with different gases and found that the one filled with carbon dioxide rose in temperature and took much longer to cool back down than normal air. Uh, So from that, she was able to infer that if the atmosphere had a higher proportion of carbon dioxide, then it also would have had a higher temperature. So basically figuring out the greenhouse effects in tiny little greenhouses, tiny little glass tubes filled with gas. Yeah, pretty much. That's really cool. And did she know the physics behind why that happened? No. So her experiments weren't really sophisticated enough for her to isolate the physics behind it. Um, But we also have to keep in mind that she was an amateur scientist and just didn't have access to the kind of equipment that you would need to figure that out. I find it astonishing that she figured this out in, what was it, did you say 1856? Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But her work went dark, right? So how was it rediscovered? Well, it was completely by chance. In 2010, a retired petroleum geologist called Ray Sorensen came across a summary of her work from 1857. Um, And it was the publication of his findings that sort of brought public recognition, the public recognition that she deserves. Um, And a short film was even made about her in 2018 called Eunice, which I thought was very nice. That's really neat. But I kind of thought, It's all well and good to look back at the female scientists of history, but what about the cool research that they're doing today? So there was heatwave expert Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick who decided to look into heatwaves in 2012, but back then there wasn't really any way of measuring them, so she developed a toolbox for doing that. Emma, why would you need to measure heatwaves? Why was she doing this? Well, by being able to look at how they've changed over time, And you can use that to predict heat waves into the future, which is so important because they're events driven by climate change. It didn't occur to me that that that's something you'd need to be able to measure um, or that it hadn't been done until 2012 as well. Um, You've got one other female scientist you want to talk about, yeah? Yes. So there's a neuroengineering expert, Pip Carrolly, who helps people better understand their seizures by integrating data from multiple sources, uh, in particular wearable devices. What kind of wearable devices? They've been using Fitbits uh, to look at heart rate, oxygen saturation, and even sweat sensing. 
And using that in combination with uh, people's own records of past seizures, they're able to figure out what specific risk factors they have for their own seizures. That's really cool. So they collect the data from the Fitbits and then use that to predict seizure risk? Yeah. Yeah. And it's tailored to each individual person's own body measurements and their past records. So Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick and Pip Carroll are both women that Cosmos has profiled in the past year. Yes, uh, they've been profiled in Cosmos Weekly. Now, Jamie, you have a dinosaur to tell us about. So we're talking about a diplodocid. We're not exactly sure what kind, but I can tell you from a wonderful little diagram that the researchers included in their paper that used Anthony Fauci as a scale bar, that it had a neck of around three metres long, so that's just under two Fauci's. So it would have been a pretty miserable sore throat. How on earth do you figure out that dinosaur had a cold? Well, the first thing to say is that it probably wasn't a cold as such. It was just an infection that had the same symptoms as a cold, like a sniffle and a cough. So the likely culprit was actually a fungal infection similar to ones we see in modern birds. And it's a kind of infection that can quite easily spread into the bones and make an animal pretty sick and miserable. So even though the infection would have started in the dinosaur's airways, it spread into the bones of its neck and left some pretty telltale lumps and scars. That sounds like a really awful cold, one that actually gets into the bones of your neck. That just, I feel like I've been that sick before, but I probably haven't. I heard that these weren't new fossils that had just been dug up, though. Why are we only spotting this evidence now? Yeah, you're quite right. These fossils were originally unearthed way back in 1990, and it hasn't been until now that we've picked up this infection in the bones. And that's probably the most interesting part of the story, really. It's this emerging subfield of paleontology that we call paleopathology, where researchers are investigating disease in these long dead creatures, which on the face of it seems pretty incongruous because most diseases affect the soft tissues of the body, which of course don't readily fossilise except in some really very rare circumstances. So if all the tissues have long since rotted away, how on earth do you go back and diagnose a cold, right? But with these new CT scanning abilities, researchers are able to look more closely at bones that they've had in collections for decades, and they can reassess how they got all these various lumps and bumps and scrapes. And increasingly, they can match those weird bony lumps with ones we see in modern animals and paint a better picture, not just of what the dinosaurs looked like, but how they lived their lives and how they suffered through aches and pains and sniffles just like the rest of us, which I think makes dinosaurs just that much more relatable, don't you, knowing that they got sniffles? Yeah, definitely. I can't wait to see what else they find out in the future using that technique. That's so cool. This wasn't the week's only dinosaur story, though, was it? No, it wasn't. And along the same lines, shifting from paleopathology to what I guess you could call paleodermatology, Researchers have also been looking at some rocks with imprints of sauropod skin, and they reckon they found evidence that dinosaurs could get goosebumps, which just makes them even more endearing. Sniffles and goosebumps. You just want to give them a cuddle. I'd love to give it a cuddle if only it wouldn't bite my head off. (laughs) I think I can pass on watching a dinosaur sneeze, actually. I feel like that's (laughs) something I don't need in my life. Especially one with a three-metre-long neck. Yeah. A two-fouchy neck. (laughs) Um, we've been taking a look at the Winter Olympics this week. 
Ellen, what's weird about these games from a climate perspective? So this is the first ever Winter Olympics that's going to be run 100% on completely artificial snow. Um, Previous Winter Olympics have been run mostly on artificial snow. I think the 98% artificial has been one of them. Um, But this is the first games where none of the snowfall has come naturally, which is relatively common for Beijing in the winter. So it's not that surprising. The officials knew that that was probably going to happen when they gave the games to Beijing. The interesting thing is that this is the first Olympics ever run on artificial snow completely. It's very unlikely to be the last. There was a report that came out a couple of weeks ago suggesting that of the 21 cities that have hosted Olympic Games, probably only 11 of them by 2050 will be suitable for holding a Winter Olympics. Many of them will need to have artificial snow to be able to have enough snowfall to um, support the Games, and some of them just straight up will be too warm to even from an artificial snow perspective. That's problematic for athletes. Artificial snow is a bit different to natural snow. Um, It's got much higher ice content. It can be a lot more slippery. Some of them prefer it, um, but it's definitely a different thing. So there are risks for injuries for athletes as well. I never knew that there was such a difference in snow. I thought snow was snow no matter how you made it. Uh, But can you fill us in on what happened at the ski jumping last week? Yeah, so there was a bit of chaos. There were five athletes kicked out of the um, team ski jumping event, mixed teams event, Um, all female athletes um, from four of the most competitive countries. Um, So Germany, Austria, Japan and Norway all got disqualified. So the reason they got disqualified was that their ski suits didn't meet the white right weight regulations they were a little bit too light in most cases um and they sort of failed to pass muster are there any other requirements for the ski jumper suits i didn't know about the weight requirements no so ski jumping is an interesting sport in most sports there's sort of a trade-off between being too light and being too heavy there's um a weight that's optimal for the sport particularly anything that involves speed like skiing ski jumping that sort of thing In ski jumping, because it's all about aerodynamics and it's all about staying in the air for as long as possible, you have to be basically the lighter you are, the further you're going to go. So um, being lighter is pretty much inherently an advantage. So there are actually rules and regulations around ski jumpers' weights. If their body mass index falls below a certain level, then they get penalised for it. And their ski suits also have to make up for additional weight if the athletes lose weight um, in the competitions. Their ski suits also have to be very tight fitting because otherwise, if you increase the surface area of your ski suit, um, you can basically turn it into a parachute. And again, that can get you to move a lot further. So it's all to do with um, drag and lift, essentially. And the margins are really, really tight. There was one athlete who on Saturday at the individual event was disqualified because she was 300 grams too light. Now, 300 grams is nothing. That's like a big glass of water, basically. If she'd she'd had that before entering, she would have been allowed to compete. And she was allowed to compete a few days later, and she actually won a bronze medal in the team's event after several other athletes have been disqualified. Wow. I wonder if they could get around that by just letting you eat an apple or something straight before the event. Like if you're 300 grams under, just, yeah, drink a glass of water and re-weigh. You'd think that should be allowed. The trick is um, 
There's no evidence that any of the athletes were doing this. I want to make this very clear. I'm not accusing them of anything, but they are, there have been practices in the past of athletes sort of skipping meals before ski jumping or other events where being lighter is being, is more advantageous. It happens in boxing occasionally as well, um, or being like a little bit dehydrated because that gives you a very, very slight weight advantage. Um, this is not necessarily what happened to these athletes. And the athletes are saying the officials actually just changed their measuring regulations. They're saying it's the officials' fault, not their fault. Um, but they're very, very small margins and they really do make a difference to how far you can go. So that's why they're so stringent around weight and also how tight the suits are, how permeable the suits are as well. So this is a crazy level of attention to detail and I get why it's important for Olympic athletes. I understand that. But does this carry over to amateur winter sport players as well? Yeah, I talked to one researcher who was telling me about um, amateur winter sports. Um, all of the fabrics that they use, most of them have um, benefited from research done on winter Olympians fabrics as well. So obviously permeability is a big deal in ski jumping. There are actually rules around how permeable your, your suit has to be. Um, in sports like luge, um, speed skating, having a really low permeable suit, so something that's like very, very hydrophobic, doesn't let any air or moisture in, that's going to make you more aerodynamic and that's going to make you faster. Um, but longer-term things like skiing, cross-country skiing, anything that takes longer, you really want it to be breathable because otherwise you're going to heat up. So those are all things that researchers have spent a lot of time working on perfecting for elite athletes. And it has all filtered down to commercial sportswear as well. So more breathable stuff, less permeable stuff. All of that works appeared in commercial clothing as well, particularly hydrophobic coatings. You see them on like raincoats, boots, all of that sort of stuff that links back to Olympic research. Amazing. I just want something that can keep me warm in the snow. I can fall down fast enough by myself. Yeah, just give me something made of wool. I don't need something really <laughs> tight fitting in aerodynamic. That seems scary to me. Exactly. But I never had any chance of getting a gold medal. So I understand if you do that these things matter. Yeah, it's interesting to hear about all of these. And it's interesting for me in particular because I've never seen snow ever. Mm. let alone had to wear anything to help me survive in it. Well, I hear um, Mount Isa has put in a bid for the 2030 Winter Olympics, backed by Australian gold medalist Steve Bradbury. Um, they're claiming they're going to need a lot of snow machines, uh, possibly if they change the 38 degrees Celsius to um, just change the C to an F, and people will think that it's, it's cold enough to run the Olympics there. But um, maybe Mount Isa 2030 is your chance, Emma. Hey. I'll start training now. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly, with its unique approach to how science, news and the economy intersect. Podcast listeners can get both products at a special price using the coupon code you will also find in the description. Of course, you can watch and listen to all our Cosmos briefings via the link in the description too. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton, and today's podcast featured Jamie Priest, Emma Perfetto, and Ellen Fidian. Thank you. Thank you.